One shot is all you get. Crimson Trace rifle scopes help you take aim when that shot comes. Purpose-built with maximum features, versatility, and a lifetime warranty. Crimson Trace will elevate your performance in moments that matter. Hey, y'all. It's Tom Gresham's Gun Talk. Look out. We smoking. So much to talk about. Tom Gresham here. It's Gun Talk. If you'd like to be a part of this, just give me a call. Call me at Tom Talk Gun. How's that? Easy. Talk about the NRA and the things that's going on there and a lot of turmoil, uh, a lot of things going on. Before we get to our, our next guest, I do want to pick up uh, Brian. He's in uh, Kentucky, called in, and, and I appreciate your, your patience, Brian, online too. Uh, how can we help you? What's the question here? Tom, my question is... Uh... How do so many of my uh, role models throughout life be part of an organization that ends up in a place like this? If Let me throw out a couple names. Tom Selleck, Ted Nugent, Charlton Heston, Richard Childress, and the late Arlie Ermey. How were they part of an organization that finds themselves in a place like this? Wow, what a great question. Um, well, let's see. Let's take them in order. Charlton Heston was uh, basically hired to be at the NRA. He was a product of Ackerman McQueen, the PR agency. Um, he was a great spokesman, but I'm not sure how much of an activist he was. I mean, this was a hired role for him, and a lot of people don't like to hear that, but that was what was really going on there. Uh, Tom Selleck, I don't think, really pay, uh, participated a whole lot. I think it was a thing. He is definitely a gun guy, but he's busy. I'm not sure how much time he spent on the board. I'm not even sure how many meetings he went to. Uh, and frankly, I guess, and here's the critical thing you have to understand. The board of directors, there are 75 people. It's insane to try to get anything done mm -hmm. with 75, unless the goal is to be able to control it. And you can put some people on there who are high profile and still minimize their impact. And I am convinced that's a lot of what happens. Here's what I've been told. Okay. I haven't, you know, <laughs> I tried to sit in on a, Board of Directors meeting, being a member, a life member, benefactor member. I got kicked out along with everybody else. They went into a nine-hour executive session uh, in Indianapolis. But what I have been told is that for a number of people who are on the board, this is the most exciting and most important thing in their life. It is critical for them to be a member of the NRA board. They can tell people they're on the board. And that being the case, they will do whatever it takes to stay on the board. And that basically means whatever Wayne and the executive committee wants done, they let them know, and that is the way they vote. It's just what I've been told. I think one of the critical failings of all this is the board has forgotten who works for whom. In, in this case, the board does not, should not serve at the pleasure of the hired help. They are supposed to direct the hired help, and Wayne LaPierre and everybody else who's on staff there works for the board, and the board should be running the organization. I think for some number of years it has been exactly the opposite, and I think the board essentially functions as a, uh, a rubber stamp for what the staff wanted to get done. Well, I know that's the case. I know that's what's been happening. Uh, but to your, your 
pointed question. It's a very good question. It's how do what happens when you get good people on there? How do they let this happen? They get really frustrated. And I have seen several good people, people I know, go on the board, been there for two or three terms, and finally just say, this is impossible. I can't get anything done. I now realize what's been going on. And this is black for the last 20 years. And they say, you know, I'm out. Nothing could be done. I had a board member this week say, look, we're going to work on this as hard as we can. But it's unlikely we'll be able to get anything done because Wayne controls enough of the board. And it's simply a factor of that's the way it's going to be. You know, and I don't know. I personally don't know the mechanism by which change can be affected. Uh, until and unless something nearly catastrophic happens to the group. If Wayne won't step aside on his own, I don't know if there's a mechanism to remove him. Uh, just because of the way the bylaws are written. I mean, the board could, but you'd have to have the executive committee. You'd have to have uh, a number of the board members actually take action. And right now, a lot of them are saying, no, 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 everything's great. No, no worries. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Look at the history of the NRA. We've been doing great stuff. This is all just an outside attack. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on there. It really is. So I, that's not a reassuring answer. But it is my take on what I think is going on. I appreciate the call, sir. I do want to mention something. Um, saw Marion Hammer's piece this week where she talks about how, you know, the NRA has been doing such great things and all of these statements, all these attacks are scurrilous and on and on. And she's, the whole thing was setting the record straight. She wanted to set the record straight. Well, let me just add a little bit of history. I meant, mentioned this on Twitter. If you want to set the record straight, we'll add this little piece. About 20 years ago, roughly, I don't know exactly, roughly 20 years ago, I, on this radio show, which was brand new at the time, fairly new, I interviewed Neil Knox, old friend of mine, a gun rights advocate, a warrior in the gun rights world, and had him on the radio show. I almost immediately heard from Marion Hammer. Hmm, that was interesting. Form, the first woman president of the NRA, an activist in her own right, and she very clearly let me know that I was absolutely on the shoot list, mispronouncing that, for uh, NRA, for having the temerity to interview Neil Knox on my radio show. How dare I? And basically, I was going to be ostracized to put on that list from the NRA. That's Marion. So if you want to set the record straight, that's just one little piece of, and, and uh, God, I've heard so many stories like that through the years. Tell you what we do. I want to take a quick break here, and then we'll get our, our guest in here. Uh, Logan, don't go anywhere. I appreciate your patience. We're going to get you in here. Let's talk about history of guns. Why are guns interesting from a historical standpoint? 866-TALK-GUN. someone leaves you their gun collection, you may want a few, but what do you do with the rest? How do you sell them? Who do you call? Well, I call Johnny Dury at Dury's Guns. Whether you're selling one gun or 500, they'll tell you what it's worth and write you a check. Simple. 
quick, easy, fair. I trust Dury's Guns. Give them a call. Dury'sGuns.com. Perhaps more than any other landscape, wetlands embody the life-giving abundance that nature has to offer. And perhaps more than any other organization, Ducks Unlimited is working to ensure that our continent's wetlands not only survive, but thrive for generations well beyond this one. The time is now to band together. The time is now to rescue our wetlands. You got your carry permit, and that's good. But you know you could use more training. Get the DVDs, which have what you need. Springfield Armory presents Concealed Carry 1 and Concealed Carry 2 with Bata Group. Learn specific concealed carry skills from Top Gun fighting trainers. Get trained. Be prepared. This really is life and death. ShopGunTalk.com That's ShopGunTalk.com When the U.S. military's elite units and law enforcement agencies across the globe demanded innovation and reliability, they didn't settle. They chose Sig Sauer. When world champion professional shooters demanded precision accuracy, they didn't settle. They chose Sig Sauer. So it's no surprise more and more civilian gun owners are refusing to settle for anything less. They're choosing Sig Sauer firearms, ammunition, electro-optics, suppressors, air guns, and training. Sig Sauer. Never settle. Welcome back. 866-TALK-GUN. You know, I'm, you've heard me talk about the Cody Firearms Museum and how I really like gun museums. I like museums anyway, but gun museums are fascinating. And I've often kind of wondered, what is it about guns and history? Because there are some gun collectors who are really historians as much as they are collectors. Uh, maybe helping us answer that question, joining us right now is... Uh, Logan Metesh, did I get that uh, right, Logan? Uh, it's Metesh, and don't worry about it. Metis. Everybody butchers it. <laughs> well, good. I'm not alone then. Very good. All right. High, high caliber history. What, what is high caliber history? So high caliber history is uh, is my way of combining my love of firearms and my professional development and career in museums and, and history for the past decade. Uh, to be able to to put together the best of both worlds and find a way to get paid doing it. <laughs> that sounds like a fun deal. All right, so uh, what do you think? I, I throw this question out. There is something about guns and history. And, you know, if you're a collector of Winchesters, you know the history of all these guns. If you're a collector of Sharps, of Colts, or or military guns, it really, people will talk about the details of the guns, but it's always within context of its place in history. What's going on there? Yeah, so I, I think the easiest way to explain that, and maybe it's not an easy way, but the way that makes most sense to me uh, is that the best way to know where you're going is to figure out where you came from. Uh, and, and that, of course, involves looking at history and we as Americans, our history in this country is deeply, deeply tied to firearms ab above all else. And as human beings, we love 
tactile things. You know, humans are drawn to things that they're able to touch and to hold and, mm. and feel and examine and turn them over in their hands as they're turning over the thoughts in their minds. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and a firearm is a very basic way to do that. You know, you can, you can hold on to a single-action army uh, that was with Custer's men at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876, or you can hold on to a, a Springfield Model 1861 rifle musket that was at, uh, you know, the Battle of Gettysburg, or, or even go into modern stuff, you know, a 1911 that was at the Battle of the Bald in World War II. Right. I think, uh, I think it's a way to tie ourselves and to ground ourselves into the collective history that we all share. And so that's why I think firearms are, are so deeply and intrinsically tied uh, to history and why you see some, some incredibly successful museums throughout this country and throughout the world that are tied to and directly related to firearms. Because uh, regardless of how you feel about them as an object, um, everyone has a connection to them, good, bad, or otherwise. Well, you know, Logan, I'm, I'm just listening to you and certainly agreeing with you, but it also, I had this other thought, but yes, firearms are this intrinsic piece of history and you can touch it. But you know, the other thing is you can shoot it. You can have an experiential you know, uh, connection to history by going out and even if I don't have an original uh, Colt single action, I can shoot a single action revolver that in some form or fashion gives me that experience that helps me in some part, small way be a part of the history, if that makes any sense. Absolutely, Tom. You're right. That's uh, it's a concept of hands-on history, if you will. And, uh, hmm. and that's an approach that a lot of museums have taken to as well, being able to, to handle certain things. You know, the Cody Firearms Museum just reopened, and you can go in and work actions on test guns and try out different triggers or you can go to colonial right. williamsburg uh, in virginia and, and they'll you know they've got a program where you can load up a flintlock musket and shoot it and see how accurate or inaccurate they are uh and those are both wonderful programs and you're right there's something about being able to have that experience with the firearms that really resonates to people well it, it becomes more than just reading about it more even than just touching it it becomes something you have done. And when you do that, everything you do has, a, in some small way, has a way of changing you. It changes your frame of reference, something you have done. Uh, there's just, I mean, there's just something cool about shooting an M1 Garand or a 1911 or whatever it happens to be. You go, man, I, I just feel like I've touched history with there. Exactly. You're able to, to make that connection in a, in a way that you just can't in any other way. You know, you can you can read about it in a book or you can watch it in a movie or a documentary. But, you know, until you actually put that rifle up to your shoulder or cock the hammer on that handgun and, and pull the trigger, you don't truly understand what it feels like until you do that. And uh, it is. It's it's unlike anything else that you can experience in history. In in your studies, and you, you've looked into all these different guns and different manufacturers and all, do you ever run across a, holy cow, I never knew that, or an aha moment, or the story behind the story kind of thing? Yeah, you know, I, I have found there's a, a lot of interesting stuff going through the old patent records and seeing different 
ideas that folks were trying to come up with for different designs as we were working on different technological advances, going from flintlock to percussion and from single shot to repeater and seeing things that you look at it with today's mindset and you go, wow, I can't believe they tried that. There's no way that was going to be feasible. <laughs> but at the time, they didn't know that, yeah. you know, they, sure. they had yeah. to try it out for themselves. And and there's a lot of interesting stuff like that uh, into the old patent documents that you just, it leaves you scratching your head uh, and also chuckling at times because it's just, there's some fascinating stuff in there. Well, the other thing you find, and I've certainly seen this, is that so often you look back and you go, wait a minute, that was like 50 or 100 years ago, and they were doing the thing that somebody just announced as being brand new. Yes, everything old is new again. Uh, yeah. and, and most definitely, you see it in the firearms industry. All of the, all the companies that we have today, they're all standing on the shoulders of the inventors and the individuals that came before them. Uh, it's it's absolutely impossible for anyone in any industry to get where you are today uh, without the benefit of the advances that those from previous generations had created and come up with. Um, and, and sometimes it's small things and you just don't realize it, you know, like the development of the percussion cap, uh, you know, but until someone comes up with that cap, the concept of percussion ignition, even though it existed, was was mm-hmm. still cumbersome. Um, and so, you know, you, you put it in that little bitty cap, and that's uh, quite literally such a small piece of history, but it has a tremendous impact. And that's what, you know, that's what leads us forward to get modern primers that we have today. Uh, and it's, it, it, it's it, it actually changed, it, it changed the course of wars, which changes the course of history. Just, as you say, yeah. the percussion cap by itself. Uh, when you can shoot faster, when you can shoot in the weather, when you can do all these things, your forces become better than the other forces. Yep, exactly. And it's it's uh, that huge ripple effect that you end up having, and it can oftentimes turn the tide of the day, you know? Fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've, I've tried at times to explain to people, and maybe you can give us the real quick capsulization, and I'm trying to tell people, look, my arms were the basis in, in some degree, maybe a large degree, in the Industrial Revolution in the United States, right? Absolutely. Very much so. There's tons of innovation the, that happens uh, in the Industrial Revolution that, that helps us become who we are today uh, up at, at Springfield Armory, which is now a, a National Park Service site up in Massachusetts. They've got the original what's called a Blanchard lathe, and it is the the great-great-granddaddy of the really high-tech CNC stock duplicating machines that you see in factories today. Uh, and it's just a very simple belt-driven, uh, you know, hook it up to a steam engine, and it duplicates the stocks that they were making uh, on, mm-hmm. on the original Springfield muskets, uh, and, and you think to yourself, okay, well, big deal. It's, it's duplicating a stock. Well, that's a very big deal because this is an era when you're still dealing with individual craftsmen who are making these guns, and so the concept of interchangeable parts doesn't exist. And so if you can make that stock uniform from one gun to the next, then that's going to make the job a little bit easier for the guy who's making the barrels and the guy who's making the locks and who's fitting the trigger guards and 
it, it all has this trickle-down effect that absolutely starts with the Industrial Revolution uh, and, and really enables us to push forward and become the behemoth uh, of the arms industry into, you know, the 20th century. It's what enables us to become the arsenal of democracy during World War II. Uh, and that all takes place because of the mechanization of the arms industry that leads to the interchangeability of the arms industry uh, that leads to the mm -hmm. ability to mass produce uh, on an exponential scale and bring us to where we're at today. And it all starts with the Industrial Revolution. Logan, if people want to know uh, more about this to follow what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, the best way is to go to highcaliberhistory.com, uh, and they can find a bunch of different blog posts on there and you know all the different social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and, and follow along. And, and if they've got questions about, you know, hey, I've got old granddad's gun been sitting in the closet. What is this? You know, uh, reach out to me. I'm, I'm happy to, to help figure out what your family history is with those guns, because it's just as fascinating to me as it is to mm. you. Cool. Okay. It's highcaliberhistory.com. Yes, sir. Very good. Logan, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You take care. Uh, I'm uh, I'm thinking about uh, one of the things that Logan is saying is that understanding the history of the development of firearms, I think is is as important, maybe more important now than any time in history, because there are so many who want to demonize advancements in firearms. Take, for instance, well the the AR-15, if you will. It's a 50-year-old design, so it's not new in any form or fashion. But at the same time. There are those who say, well, this is too new, it's too modern, it's too advanced, it shoots too fast, it's too ugly, it's too whatever. Not understanding that at every turn, whether it was the bolt-action rifle or the lever-action rifle, the same things were said about them. It's just that now they've got a dumb and complicit media that will serve as the echo chamber for all of that. It is, it's just amazing, I tell you. Uh, when we come back, it'll be your time. 866-TALK-GUN. This is Gun Talk. A girl can't go wrong with something in basic black. Like an AR-15. Some things never go out of style. Like Tom Gresham's Gun Talk. If you've been listening to Gun Talk for a while, you know about the Truth Squad. It's a thing I created... 20 years ago now, maybe more, basically asking people to volunteer. Uh, would you be involved? Would you write a letter to the editor? Would you write comments? Would you challenge misinformation that you see or hear in the media? A lot of people said, yeah, I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'll do that. And I love it when we get reports from the True Squad out there. And this one comes in from Chris in Stockton, California. He says, uh, a local news radio station is broadcasting the news that the California Rifle and Pistol Association and Kim Rohde, she's, the, of course, the Olympic shooter, have filed a lawsuit against the California Ammo Background Check. He says, in the news broadcast, the words gun advocates support the above was used, it, says like, it seems like the term was presented in a negative way. So Chris called the newsroom of the station. He said he was actually able to talk with a live person. He says, I think it may have been the reporter that reads the news on the air. According to Chris, he says, 
I said that the term gun advocates is not accurate and suggested to change the term to gun rights advocates. She said that was a reasonable suggestion, and she would put it on the news script, which is what is read on the air. He says he thanked her and asked her to put this into their FCC file. Aha, he's been listening. Good, good move. Um, said he listened for the next news report, says there was no change made. The term gun advocate was still there. Yeah, it takes a little while for changes to be made. Uh, he says, am I making too much of this? Just trying to figure out where my no-shrug policy should be. He said, I don't want to look foolish when supporting the Second Amendment and gun rights. You're not looking foolish. You're doing the right thing. Here's the thing. If one person calls, it's ignorable. If three people call, it's a movement. I'm not kidding, really. Because they, do, they don't have people to call them about anything, really. If you get two other buddies to call and say, hey, you guys got to quit using that pejorative, that politically loaded term gun advocate. Let's go with gun rights advocates, because that's what we're really talking about is protecting our rights as gun owners. All of a sudden, they're going to go, wow, people are really listening. They're taking offense to this. And well, Let's take a look at it. This is how we get things changed. We get things changed by refusing to just shrug and say that's just the way it is. We get things changed by making a call, sending a letter, even going to visit, making an appointment. Hey, would, would it be okay if I came over and talked to you for 15 minutes about this subject? And a lot of times they're going to say, well, we don't have time. Go, okay, do we have five minutes on the phone right now that I could talk to you about it? Reasonable, polite, understanding that these are just people as well. They're not the enemy. A lot of times they just don't know anything about it. And a lot of times the terms that they get, they pick up from the press releases from the gun ban movement. And they think that's accurate. It's up to us to present a different view, a different approach. So way to go, Chris. That is the, the whole True Squad concept there. The no shrug deal. I'm not just going to shrug and put it off. You know, our, our phrase, our motto for the True Squad is, a lie left unchallenged becomes the truth. So we're going to challenge it every single time. Let me go to line five. Dave is uh, driving in New York. Hey, Dave, you got a range report for us. Yes, sir, Tom. Really enjoy the show. And I uh, go back and see your archives and listen to the podcast and make some miles go by really easily. <laughs> well, good. Hey, so what's I had going a chance, on? Uh, I was. I was driving out in uh, Indiana on my way out to Oklahoma, passing through mm -hmm. Indiana on Interstate 70, and I checked my map to see where the firearms dealers were along the way, and one of them popped up as Top Guns in Terre Haute, Indiana. Okay. And I, I called them up uh, to get directions in there. Of course, I had the big rig, and they said, yeah, we can we can squeeze you in the parking lot. We've got a big parking lot. I okay. said, great. I said, uh, I want to check you out. So I came down. It's a very big store, nice, clean, modern, friendly, all that good stuff, plus a uh, rental uh, possibility. So I rented four guns that I was uh, interested in narrowing down my list for a, a carry gun and uh, had a blast. So which guns did you shoot? Well, I, I shot the, uh, I believe it was the Glock 43. That's a 9mm. Yes. The 43? 
Yeah, the 43 is a 9 millimeters, uh, kind of a compact single stack. So, okay, you shot the Glock 43. What else? I heard a lot about the SIG 365, so I wanted to try that. Okay. And then I tried the Springfield XDM. And then, uh, last not. but not least, the Ruger LC9S. Okay, and that's a pretty good representation of some good carry guns. So what were your impressions of them, and what did you end up liking the most? Well, I, I thought, I didn't know what to think because I hadn't fired any of those. My other carry gun uh, before uh, things got crazy in New York State was a, uh, believe it or not, a Ruger P85. <laughs> Ooh, that's the way back machine. Holy cow. <laughs> Yes, sir. I had to uh, supplement uh, everything with 10-round magazines because of uh, Emperor Cuomo and his regulations. Right. But I was right. also, also carrying a, an old uh, steel Makarov in 380, which was a lot uh, smaller but didn't weigh a lot, a lot uh, less than the Ruger P85. So looking for something lighter. I was looking to get as light as I could go and, and move up back up to 9 millimeter. So what was so your favorite of those four? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, Tom? go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I, I shot. I shot all four of those that I mentioned, and I wanted to see how they felt and and what I could, you know, how I could hit with them. And I couldn't hit anything hardly with the Glock 43 for some reason. The Sig 365, I couldn't really do much with that, but the Springfield XDM and the Little Ruger LC9S. I was able to put them where I wanted to put them. Must have been the uh, maybe just the way they felt in the huh. hand or something. Right. Sure. So the XCM is a, a bit larger than the uh, LC9, and I had shopped around to find the uh, and you know, find something 17, 18 ounces, and so mm -hmm. uh, I started looking for a Ruger LC9S, and it took me a while. I went on gunbroker.com, and I visited various stores and stuff, and couldn't find one that uh, lit my fire until I visited a, another gun store down in Warrington, Virginia, called Clark Brothers, and they had a, a second-hand LC9S that uh, was priced right, and I purchased it and had it shipped to my local FFL guy up in New York State, and... I'm very happy with that and put a couple a couple boxes of ammo through it and, and getting better and closing in my groups and learning how that trigger works. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's happy, 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 happy. That, that is great. A wonderful range report. I really appreciate that. And uh, I would offer that uh, as you're traveling around, get that gun dealio app, put it on your phone. And as you travel around, it'll actually send you a notification when you're going by a gun store, which is a really cool thing. You get that little sound, that cool shotgun racking sound. You go, oh, that's pretty neat. Very good. Great range report. Hey, if you've got a range report for us, call us 866-TALK-GUN. The Armed Citizen Legal Defense Network is a big family of gun owners standing together to protect individual members from unmeritorious prosecution after an act of self-defense. Our network family now exceeds 17,000 members protected by a $2 million legal defense fund. Shouldn't you be part of the network, too? Join the family at armedcitizensnetwork.org. 
That's armedcitizensnetwork.org or call 360-978-5200. For 36 years, the U.S. Sportsmen's Alliance has been fighting to protect hunting, fishing, and trapping for sportsmen from coast to coast. Today, we are under constant attack from extremist animal rights groups who want to end your ability to hunt in the U.S. Join us to protect our sporting heritage and our way of life outdoors. To join or for more information on how you can help, go to ussportsman.org. That's ussportsman.org. Want great deals on guns, ammunition, and gear? Download the free Gundelio app today. With Gundelio, you can search for deals, listen to the Gun Talk podcast, watch gun videos, Read gun news and get notifications right to your phone about deals and special offers. Save money on the products you want from the companies you love. New deals, discounts, and rebates added daily. Gundelio, available for free in the App Store and Google Play. This is Jeff with Black Hills Ammunition. Our Honey Badger line now features a new 40 Smith & Wesson caliber loading. Gelatin testing shows that this round outperforms conventional hollow points, not only in terms of velocity, penetration, and weight retention, but it also provides superior temporary cavities. The profile and solid copper construction assure flawless feeding. This is the latest technology in handgun performance. Black Hills Ammunition, the power of performance. Just a reminder that we are uploading new videos every week uh, on Gun Talks, YouTube, Roku, Amazon Fire, and Apple TV channels. Uh, also on the Gun Talk Facebook page. Uh, you can go to guntalk.com, check it out, see uh, all the different places. But yeah, new videos all the time. We just uh, did some video with Jerry Michalik and the crew at Smith & Wesson. Can't release that video yet. Super secret stuff going on. But, man, anytime you get a chance to work with Jerry Mitchell, that's pretty cool. You talk about a, a legend in shooting. But, yeah, there's so many new cool guns coming out. The stuff we have now is so great. I was, I was thinking about that last call we had. And Dave was uh, went into a place, tried four different guns, rented them. We talk about this all the time. Shot them and discovered that two of them he could not shoot well for whatever reason. Now, I mean, give me a break. The The Glock 43 is a great pistol. The SIG P365 is a great pistol. Uh, a lot of people shoot them very, very well. Dave didn't shoot them well. He had two others he tried. He shot them as well. That's why we advocate whenever you can, whenever possible, try to get your hands on them. Rent before you buy, if at all possible. Because you may say, you know, I like the feel of this thing. And then you find out, man, I just I don't shoot this gun. Of course, then what's probably going to happen is you're going to say, well, this, this gun's no good. Well, yeah, but you hand it to your buddy, and he or she can shoot it really well. So there's real value in the whole renting before you buy. Find a gun store that has a range, a place that has rentals. If you can't find that, try to find some buddies that have various guns and try those. But uh, it's really worthwhile to make that effort. Let's scoot up to uh, Matt on line four out of uh, Arizona. Hello, Matt. You're on Gun Talk. What's on your mind? Well, um, a friend of mine uh, gave me an AR-15 to work on when he goes on vacation. The problem is 
He says it's stovepipes and jams. Now, mm. it's got a 20-inch barrel. He wanted a rifle. But come to find out, when I got it home, I'm looking at it going, well, heck, it's got a uh, carbine buffer tube, a carbine spring, which is 10 and a half inches long instead of the 12 or whatever, and a buffer right. for a carbine. Now, would that have anything to do with its jamming? Because I've read everywhere. Oh, yes. Exactly. Oh, and Yeah, oh, yes, absolutely. No, no, you were... What you're looking at, and you know the drill, you know how this works. It's a matter of spring tension, buffer, the weight, and you can change the weight of your uh, buffers in there, and you're affecting the bolt velocity, uh, which is critical to getting reliable feeding. Uh, you know, you don't want that bolt going too fast or too slow. Uh, right. And that's why they sell these different buffers, different weights, all the rest of it, different springs that you can try and basically fine-tune to get your... If it's done right, your AR should simply run like a sewing machine. It should never have a problem as long as you just keep it well lubricated. I, I think you have exactly. figured it out. Now the question is, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm, I've got to get a hold of him first. And uh, the thing is, I'm going to build a carbine... But anyway, um, I'm going to talk to him about buying the correct parts. He says nothing has to be fancy on it. And uh, okay. when the guy built it, he said the guy that built it had actually built ARs for the Utah or Salt Lake City Police Department. And I can't see somebody doing that and not knowing hmm. the difference. And, well... Um, we, we often are surprised by uh, things where you're thinking, I can't believe that would happen, but... You know, and it could be that, honestly, it could be that uh, the guy didn't build it that way. Somebody else made a modification in, on it along the way. It could be that somebody's building stuff, and he just grabbed a bunch of parts that didn't exactly fit. But he said, well, we'll try this, the, thinking that the guy won't know the difference. Or who knows? There are a hundred reasons. But the beauty of it is, and this is, you know, I guess maybe the bottom line on it, is the very idea of the AR-15 platform is that it is so adjustable, so modular, that you can swap things out and you can make it all run. So uh, I, I think you're on the right track. And uh, if you're going to build a carbine, maybe this is where you're going to get yourself a spring and a buffer. I don't, I'm, just, I'm just saying, you know, maybe something going on there. But look, I appreciate the call. It is, uh, it is interesting, is it not, that you can work your ARs a lot of times you're just swapping out parts. And if you're not sure how to do it, there are a lot of YouTube videos, but also the guys at Brownells are terrific. They have a lot of really good videos as well. Brownells.com, B-R-O-W-N-E-L-L-S. It is, personally, it's my go-to place. And when I have questions about gunsmithing, because I don't do that, they're the guys that I ask about that. All right, open lines, 866-TALK-GUN will get you in here. Do you have a range report? You've been shooting something. Have you been buying anything? I know that you're way too smart to be selling a gun, right? All right, back with you. Mark's on line five out of Waco, Texas with an interesting question. Mark, what happened to your gun here? Uh, I have a uh, uh, rust that was on the barrel of it and on the 
on the rings around the scope, the vice scope. And uh, mm-hmm. what I used to clean it was uh, an Impro 7 cleaner. And then I went back and uh, used a, uh, a clean lubricate protection Impro 7. This is the original formula. Uh, I was okay. wondering what what I could do. I, it's pitted, and it got it got the mm. the rust, but it's pitted. But I'm I'm more worried about the cleaner part on the on the side scope. Uh, what I could do to uh, just can you put a, like an oil to bring back any kind of discoloration or. Or anything like that. All right, that. so let, let me see if I got this right. You, you, you had uh, rust on your stainless steel barrel to the point where it got pitted. Were you able to get the rust off of it? Yes. The Impro 7 okay. with, a, with a nylon brush took the rust, okay. yes. And All I right. also well, understand well, that you have to, that right there is, when, it, when you put that on there, you have to re-oil. And so that's why I put the, the uh, clean lubricate protection on there. Yeah, see, I'm not a fan of CLPs at all. Uh, I, I mean, it's kind of like uh, shampoo that has conditioner built in. Make up your mind. You're one or the other. Uh, you know, if I need really good metal protectant, I'm not using a CLP on it. Now, if I'm going to put, uh, if I am going to put stuff on it weekly, then a CLP is fine. But if I want to protect that metal, I'm going to put something on it that really protects metal from rust. And I'm, I'm going to go to Brownells and get, you know, the, they've got several different products made for that. But I would suggest not depending upon a CLP to be a good protectant for metal to prevent rust. It, it's a combination of it cleans, lubricates, and protects. It can't do, it can't be the best at any one of those, right? Okay. Okay. So, I mean, that's what I would do. I would, uh, you know, get it cleaned up and then get a good metal protectant. Uh, I'm trying to think. Brownells has something called Polar Protectant Number 2. But you might just cruise on the Brownells website and see what they have that they recommend. Because there's a lot of good products out there. But you know, the COP is, here's what, where I think COP works great. If you need something in your range bag where you're going to go out and you're going to be just taking care of the gun while it's running. And you can put COP in there, great. Uh, it'll lubricate, protect a little bit, you know, clean it, kind of does all that. It'll keep the gun running. But then when I finish and come back, I want to wipe the gun down with a really good rush preventative. I, I, my place in Louisiana, we got humidity that's like crazy. And uh, you can almost hear it rusting. <laughs> it happens. And for those who are wondering, he said stainless steel, yes. Um, thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate your call. He said stainless steel, yes, he did. Stainless steel is not rust-proof. It will rust, particularly if you are like me. I have, I don't know, a lot of acid in my uh, hand, my uh, body oils. When I touch things, they tend to rust. Uh, That's different with with different people. Or if you're in humid environments, especially if you're in salty environments. So you you do have to protect stainless steel as well. Wipe it down with a good oily rag, with a good gun oil or a good metal protectant. Do that regularly. If you do get a little bit of rust on there, use some gun oil and some 4-0 steel wool. 
that will usually take it off and it almost never is going to damage the finish. It's just a, a way to go, okay? Just food for thought. One of the worst things ever is to pull a gun out of a safe or someplace and then find rust on it. If you've done it, you know how awful that feels. All right, be right back with more gun talk, talking about a cool novel by a Navy SEAL.